I was born in a little town called Hope, Arkansas. I like being able to fire people who provide services to me. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Welcome to Campaign Context, an interdisciplinary election podcast. My name is Oscar Winberg, and I'm your host. I'm a PhD candidate at the History Department of Obo Academy University, working on American political history. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with the John Morton Center for North American Studies at the University of Turku and through the support of the Otto Amam Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Professor Margaret O'Mara, who will be discussing presidential elections as history and elections as pivotal shifts. Margaret O'Mara is Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Washington. She graduated with a BA from Northwestern University and received her PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania. Professor O'Mara is the author of Pivotal Tuesdays, Four Elections That Shaped the 20th Century and Cities of Knowledge, Cold War Science and the Search for the Next Silicon Valley. Her work has appeared in numerous journals and edited collections, including Social Science History, Journal of Social History and Interdisciplinary Science Reviews. Professor O'Mara also has experience from the public sector, having served in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Brookings Institution, and the Clinton White House. It's an honor to welcome you to Campaign Context. Great to be here. So let's start with your new book, and it's called Pivotal Tuesdays and focuses on four elections that shaped the 20th century. Can you tell us a little about how you came to select these four elections and which ones they are? Well, it, it wasn't easy because I could have chosen, I had 25 to choose from and I could have chosen 25. That would have made for a very, very long book, which people probably wouldn't have bought. But I chose the four and they are 1912, 1932, 1968 and 1992 because they had several things in common. One was they all were at different moments in economic history of the United States. So they were a way to delve into both larger industrial shifts and also moments of um, economic crisis that uh, were the political uh, politicians had to respond to. That was one commonality. Another was that it was a good way to look at changing modes of political communication. So you move from the era of newspapers to the era of radio, television, cable television. And, um, and the third thing that they had in common is that three of the four had a third party spoiler of such, a, a either a major third party candidate who had uh, got a share of electoral votes and popular votes um, or third party candidates that might not have gotten um, enough to get close to winning, but really had changed the conversation and the electoral calculus. Right. And all four of these elections that you write about, there seems to be a hunger for something new at their core. Uh, whether it's change or hope or despair, but something new is, is what the voters seem to want from these situations. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about this hunger for the new, for the new in sense of, of economic change or technological innovations that then uh, make the, the hunger for something new so salient in the elections? Yeah, well, at times of great economic and uh, uh, and social change, there's rupture, right? They're winners and they're losers. They're people who are advantaged by uh, economic growth of a certain type, um, and there are people who are disadvantaged by it. 
it also creates a great deal of anxiety. Um, there's sort of real economic anxiety, but there's also concern about all this change and, and things that were predictable were unpredictable. A great example is in 1912, the first election that I discuss in the book, which is coming on the heels of 50 years of extraordinary transformation in the United States. So if you were born in 1860 in the United States, and you get to the first part of the 20th century, you were born into a country that was mostly farms and small towns, that was um, where industry was just a small part of GDP. It was growing, but it was very small. Uh, and uh, and where most people were uh, of Northern European extraction. Uh, of, of, and, and then you move to 1912 and you have America is an industrial colossus. You have these giant companies, steel, oil, railroads that um, employ thousands. The Pennsylvania Railroad uh, employed more people than the entire U.S. military. Uh, at that point, the biggest government agency was the U.S. Post Office. The, the federal government was quite small. So the, the influence of corporations was really outsized and affected so many people's lives. Everything had sped up. Communication had sped up, you know, transcontinental railroads, telegraph, um, the telephone, the, the electric light, uh, urbanization, the growth of very large cities. And then on top of all of that and the fuel, the human capital that fueled this industrial colossus was immigration um, from from Europe chiefly and chiefly from Southern and Eastern Europe. So all of these new Americans coming to the North American continent who did not speak the same familiar language, dressed funny, ate different sorts of foods, and were challenging native-born Americans' idea of what it meant to be from the United States. And then, of course, the 1912 election ends with a Democrat coming to power after a rather long period of, of Republicans. And 1932, again, seems to be the same pattern, a long period though a shorter, but still a period mm -hmm. of, of Republicans and a Democrat coming as as mm -hmm. the change. Um, could you talk about the 32 election and how Roosevelt positioned himself as a change agent? Mm -hmm. A change agent. Yes, the candidate of change has been the winner in nearly every American, modern American presidential election, something that mm -hmm. future candidates should take heed of. Uh, yes. Yeah, so so Roosevelt comes in um, at the moment of extraordinary economic crisis for the United States, as it was for Europe. Um, 1932, you had nearly in the United States, 25 percent of the population was out of work. So you had people who were, you know, middle class who were plunged into unemployment and to, to poverty or near poverty. Um, capitalism had been very volatile. Industrial capitalism was very volatile. You had, a, you know, through the 19th century and early 20th century, there were lots of ups and downs and crises and um, all sorts of things. And at, the, at first, in the late 20s, many people in charge, including Herbert Hoover, the occupant of the White House, thought this was just another one of those bumps in the road crisis, which we, would be weathered by the usual mechanisms. And it was not. Roosevelt was able to tap into that early for, I think, a couple of reasons. One is he was governor of New York from 1928 to 1932, New York being a most populous state, a place that uh, the, the effects of the Great Depression were deeply felt. And Roosevelt, uh, quite early on, realized that the state government needed to do something to help, that, that relief programs needed to give people aid. They needed to put people to work. So a lot of the things that later come out in 
his new deal that he implements at the federal level are things that he tested in in, in New York. Another thing that, that Roosevelt brought, a kind of fresh perspective that Roosevelt brought, because he was by no means a scrappy you know, outsider. He was a very wealthy man from a very well-known family. Uh, and uh, in fact, other very wealthy people thought, well, he can't be doing, uh, you know, we know he's not going to do all the things he says he's going to do because then he'd be a traitor to his class. Mm. Um, turns out he was. But he uh, he was a, a also uh, was disabled. He had had a adult onset polio in the in the early 1920s. Um, it had, uh, greatly debilitated him. He was never, um, he came back into public life, but he was never able to walk unassisted and, um, worked very hard to mask that disability publicly. There were a lot of questions about his, his health and his fitness for office. And he worked quite, quite hard to create an illusion of, of vigor and, uh, robustness. Uh, but, but that experience did give him a, a, I think, increased sensitivity to understanding the need for, um, when when circumstances throw oneself into a into great vulnerability that you need other people to help and yeah. perhaps he other you know it was no longer just a um, you know rich uh, rich guy from from New York he he suddenly realized well I I need to I everyone must rely on others and so he was able to position himself in 1932 first because he you know, it was it was a bad year to be an incumbent. You know, Herbert Hoover had had uh, had run on a message of pros continued prosperity. That was mm. the cornerstone of his 28 campaign. And then the bottom drops out and uh, and it doesn't seem to doesn't he doesn't seem to be doing anything very effectively to counter it. Um, and the depression just keeps on getting worse. And and uh, Roosevelt comes in and says, you know, uh, I, I don't you know, I can't he doesn't give a lot of specifics about what he's going to do. That's a his perception about Roosevelt that he came out kind of being old policy wonk and spouting yeah. lots of specs. But he didn't. He 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 had big ideas and he gave hope. And he talked about the forgotten man. He talked about to to directly to these people who'd been so um, deeply affected by the Great Depression, saying, I'm, you know, this is a time when we need bold solutions. And we must try something new. We must have change. And said it very definitively. And the the depth of the crisis made Americans really open to these new types of solutions and interventions. These government interventions into the market economy. So FDR is a, is an example of of sort of the others. Usually, when you have somebody representing the elite uh, running, there's a contrast between him and his background and reaching out to the people. Uh, something that four years ago with Mitt Romney was very much a key mm -hmm. issue and, and the talk about grabbing a beer with, with a candidate as if that was uh, an important quality. Um, but FDR, he's able to connect with workers even though we can reasonably assume he hasn't had much social experience with, mm -hmm. with workers and the oi polloi. Uh, much of this is also then taken over in his presidency with radio. And mm -hmm. in your book, you talk uh, about the changing media and changing technology and how important that was. So can you talk about how uh, FDR used radio and, and why he was so successful in adopting that, even though mm -hmm. it had been around by the 30s for some years already? Yeah, yeah. Yes, he really, radio was an intimate medium. Um, it was unlike uh, just picking up a newspaper on the street corner and 
reading text and looking at pictures or or even going to a speech with several thousand people and hearing a politician give a great speech, you still are uh, one of many uh, consumers of information. And on radio, of course, it was mass media. Millions of people could be reached at once. But it was this device in your living room, a home appliance of sorts, where the family would sit around the, the radio and listen. Um, and and it was it created this venue. Roosevelt was um, the first president to really tap in, not the first to use radio by any means. Herbert Hoover used it a lot. He was very much a, a kind of cutting edge early adopter of, of radio and and uh, and film communication. But he but Roosevelt uh, established his famously became known as his fireside chats, where he would give this uh, regular radio addresses. And he would talk in very personal terms to, you know, my fellow Americans, I'm talking to you. And his voice would be coming across the radio. Of course, radio is a wonderful medium for someone who was physically disabled because mm. you never, you know, it was a great, you didn't have to walk to, to, to use the radio effectively. And to have these long, very detailed, very meaty conversations, um, but also ones that were uh, creating this personal connection between the president and the voter that really didn't exist to that same degree before. It's, it's you know, now we, we do have the likability factor that is so much a, a, big, a big thing in American politics. And, and not only is something that, that is a criterion that the media looks on as they report about a candidate, but also when you talk to voters, you know, why, why do you want to vote for this person or why don't you want to vote for this person? Well, I like them or I don't like them or, you know, maybe I, I, I'm not really not really sure what what might happen if they're president, but I like them. And and that Roosevelt, we owe Roosevelt that um, really creating this this um, direct relationship, communicating directly and and also creating programs that directly uh, had a direct effect on individuals' lives, where mm -hmm. you had things like the Civilian Conservation Corps that took young men, unemployed men, and put them, sent them out to work building facilities in national parks and other, and other public spaces. You had uh, the Works Progress Administration that created all sorts of jobs for people and in communities and cities across the nation where they felt, ah, what Roosevelt is doing is something that is shaping my life. And people had pictures of Franklin Roosevelt hanging on their living room wall. It was an incredible, incredible emotional, personal connection that people had with the president that was not there in the same way before that. So if Roosevelt was sort of a natural fit for radio in that as a disabled person who wanted to hide that part of him, it was really his medium. Richard Nixon, who of course is the winner of the 68 election, mm -hmm. has a far more complicated relationship to his medium if we're mm -hmm. appointing television as his medium. Uh, could you talk about a little bit how he came to see television as so important but also needed to be so controlled and, and structured, managed uh, mm -hmm. as it was in the 68 campaign? Yeah, he he was, um, you know, and, and Nixon was was not a, uh, a, a natural at television. Uh, uh, and Nixon learned from from hard experience. He his first run for president is in 1960. It's after he's been vice president for eight years. 
in the Eisenhower administration. And 1960 is the uh, the the, fame, the moment when these you have these for, for the first time have these defining television moments that you would say perhaps they've become more magnified over time in the way that they're retelling. But but one pivotal moment in 1960, of course, was the the televised debates between uh, Nixon and Kennedy. And uh, in which Nixon did not come off very well. Now, there are varying interpretations about whether that lost him the election. I think we won't go into that there. But what he did take from that is that um, he needed to, uh, in order to, to win, certainly his advisors took from that, that, that Nixon needed to be made more television ready. And so what happens in 1968 is that his um, advisors uh, kind of really focus very hard on creating an appropriate television president. You now have color television. Television is advanced as this mass medium, as this political medium. And uh, it's really interesting to look at the contrast between the ads that Nixon ran in 1960 in his campaign and the ads that he ran in 1968. In 1960, there are these stiff black and white things where he's talking to the camera sternly about the issue of the day. And, and they're, they're pretty much what Dwight Eisenhower did, except mm. they're not anything remarkable. In 1968, what's remarkable about Nixon's commercials is that he's not in them, um, that you have these bright, uh, hot, quick take, um, jangly music. They look like they look like MTV 20 years before MTV. They're really extraordinary, uh, uh, very um, uh, remarkable in their in their arresting your taking your attention that the viewers attention clearly they're competing for um for television viewers uh attention and want to make a mark and the only time the nixon's presence is not by his face but in his voice so he had these these voiceovers but the authoritative voice of nixon saying we must have law and order in this country we must come to an, an honorable end in the war in vietnam and uh and and that was that was effective they are also in, in other appearances on television were very carefully stage managed uh, and and he was um, in ways that would make him look um, like people liked him, <laughs> like he had a sense of humor. Um, and he he understood that and, and went along with that. Uh, but television did become the defining medium for the 1968 election, not only in bringing crises like the Vietnam War and uh, and civil disorder in the United States to American living rooms and defining how Americans felt about it, but also in how the politicians, how American voters got to know the candidates. And then, of course, the, the television advisor for, for Nixon was Roger Ailes, who yes. later, later became the kingpin of, of Fox News. Uh, Fox News comes a little bit later in the story than the 92 election, but already in 92, cable news television is mm -hmm. a large part of the story. Um, can you talk about Bill Clinton and, and cable television and his way of using television? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, cable TV is a defining medium for how we you know, explain 1992 and, and really, I think, set the pace and the tone for the current political moment, which is dominated by internet media and social media. Um, very, very similar. Of course, uh, CNN is founded 12 years before the 1992 election. It's around in the Reagan era, but it is not the, does not have the impact that, that it has in 92. And I think part of that is the maturation of the medium, that more people are watching cable news. 
And the real the moment when cable TV became must see TV was the Gulf War, the first Iraq war under during the presidency of George H.W. Bush, which was which Americans saw on CNN, where the uh, where the anchors and the reporters on um, on CNN became these familiar faces. And they CNN became the go to place to learn about what was going on as it was happening. What cable news did, unlike nightly news in the United States, where, you know, back in the days of the great Walter Cronkite, uh, where you had the uh, network news that was 30 minutes every evening, and you only had 30 minutes to fit in the news. So there was a kind of a high bar for what merited news of the day. Uh, and you had a, a sort of single anchor who was sort of telling you what to think about the news of the day. Cable news is now 24-7, this huge space to fill with news. And so what becomes news changes. News has to be, um, uh, you know, things that might have been just articles of gossip or throwaway minor scandals or, or um, flubs become daily news stories that are revisited again and again and again. And combine that with a very hot medium of television, as Marshall McLuhan famously would called it, where you have a, a, a you need to grab people's attention and hold it. So you're not going to get people to be, you know, watching CNN on a daily basis if you're just talking about this le- piece of legislation that got passed in the Senate. Um, you're getting people to watch by talking about the extramarital affairs that a candidate may or may not have had. You get people to watch by talking about scandal and, mm-hmm. and malfeasance. And, and this, of course, is coming in a, a post-Watergate era in the United States where American voters on both the left and the right are feeling very disillusioned about political institutions and the credibility and honesty of elected officials. And cable news becomes this this hothouse for um, kind of revving up feeling about and, and, and skepticism about whether the people who are governing us are doing a good job. So I read your book during this election cycle, but I still feel like uh, even if I would have read it prior uh, or a bit later, uh, the 2016 election seems like the fifth election for the book because <laughs> so many of the themes come back in this election and and mm-hmm. you can track so many of, of the salient issues in this election back to the previous elections. For example, just how much of the election seemed to be... Uh, Relitigating the 1990s and Clinton's presidency in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, so, and this is a broad question, but how can we understand the 2016 election as history so close to the actual events and without the traditional political history source material available that we usually use? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Uh, I think there are a lot of things we don't know yet about. Uh, the meaning of what happened. Uh, there's a reason historians kind of wait a couple decades for the dust to settle before we make big interpretive pronouncements about things. But 2016 was remarkable. And as you observed, it was 1992 all over again in so many ways, not only because the, the major headliners were all people who were well known in 1992, mm-hmm. if not players in the, in the election itself. Uh, but these 
these concerns about the the hollowing out of industrial America, the uh, the 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 plight of people whose they themselves or their parents were um, industrial workers who had a very, very good, secure living in the glorious quarter century after World War II in the United States, the heyday of union membership, a time when the American industrial superpower was relatively unchallenged by global competitors, and uh, a time of great corporate profit and great worker upward mobility. That has gone away. And the places where this is felt most deeply include places that in the electoral college are quite important in the calculus necessary to win. They're places that Democrats held on to for quite some time that Bill Clinton was able to hold on to in part because of his appeal to what he and others called the Bubba vote, (laughs) this uh, relatability to, um, you know, Bill Clinton was a was a kind of lower middle class kid from rural Arkansas, who was always, you know, had a uh, kind of a good and a, and a white man and mm. was had, a, had an empathy with um, and could relate to a wide variety of voters, including these these voters that seemed to prove so decisive in 2016. And debates about trade and NAFTA, um, uh, including kind of over uh, overemphasizing what trade deals do and don't do. Mm. I mean, the reason that jobs have gone overseas in the United States is, is it's very complex. It's very hard to boil down to a soundbite. Um, it has to do with a lot of things, including technological automation and the changing nature of markets uh, and the changing nature of consumption and where the consumers are. Uh, so it's not so simple as saying NAFTA did it all. Um, but the, obviously, the free trade is is plays a role in this. Uh, communication media also, you know, I, in all of the elections I profiled in the book, you see a, a new something that is a quote unquote new media that has a disruptive, disruptive power and the candidate who uses that new media the best, mm. most effectively um, to and changes the rules of the game of the rules of campaigning um, by using that is the one who wins. Um, Bill Clinton was the uh, was in his campaign were very, very good. At, they were made for table, cable television in part because it was cheap. It was, you know, free media. If you go on um, and if you go on television, like entertainment television, it was very good at going on Arsenio mm-hmm. Hall, playing the saxophone, going on MTV, uh, that 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 is uh, they, they played to that very effectively, just like Franklin Roosevelt did radio. And just like in 1912, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, boy, he was newspaper reporters loved reporting about Teddy Roosevelt as much as they liked reporting about Donald Trump. He always had a good quote. He always had something to say. He always was good at making news and making news interesting. Right. Uh, so even though 1992 seems like the one election that most directly was raised by the candidates as a question that we kept going back to, and and not only that election, but then the, the Clinton uh, presidency among historians i feel like 1968 is the year that is lifted up as as the comparison um, mm-hmm. and especially perhaps george wallace's brand of, yeah. of right-wing populism um, could you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about how that george wallace's independent run in, in 68 then moves into the, the republican uh, party and and later on mm-hmm. into the republican mainstream even yeah 
Yeah, George Wallace is the is the direct comp to easy comp to Trump. You know, you look at look at some of the speeches he was giving on the on the campaign trail in 1968, and the rhetoric was remarkably similar. Um, I think actually that comparison led um, historians, including me, to um, under uh, underestimate Trump's eventual triumph um, mm. because. George Wallace didn't win, right? So you have this, uh, this is a very appealing message, but the the messenger isn't usually triumphant. The, you know, Wallace is, it comes out in, um, he runs in 1968 as a third party candidate. And, and what he is, his part, his run reflects um, a couple of things. One is the, the transformation and the rifts, great uh, uh, things tearing apart the Democratic Party, which was a very uneasy big tent. Um, comprised of Southern Democrats um, and ardent supporter, including ardent supporters of segregation like Wallace uh, and uh, Northern liberals and African-Americans. So the New Deal coalition that comes emerges out of the 1930s and, and the, the, the personal relationship so many people had with Franklin Roosevelt is an uneasy one. It's one of compromise. It's one that Roosevelt himself had to um, limit the scope of the New Deal to get things passed in a Democratic, uh, uh, in a Congress led by Southern Democrats. And after 1964 and 1965, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, this is uh, the Southern, white Southern Democrats start cleaving away from the from the Democratic Party, and, and the, it becomes harder and harder for the Democrats to win nationally because you don't have the South. That doesn't happen immediately, but you see this beginning in 1968. It's one of the reasons I didn't write about 1980 as one of the elections in my in my book, uh, as pivotal as it is, because I see so many of the things that culminated in the election of Ronald Reagan are present in 1968. You see a Republican Party that is changing, going from being a party of um, fiscal conservatism and social um, sort of moderate to liberal on social issues that's mostly in the Northeast and the upper Midwest and the West to becoming a, uh, a, a Southern party, the Southernization of Republic of the Republican party is, um, uh, as, uh, as many, several historians have, have, have noted. Uh, and, and you, you have, uh, the, what Wallace does is he, of course, does not run as a segregationist when he's running a national campaign in 1968. He takes the language of that had been used to defend Jim Crow segregation in the South and and tweaks it and and starts speaking in code. He starts mm-hmm. talking about rights and individual freedoms, and and also starts disparaging these elite intellectuals, these these pointy head policy people in Washington who think they know what's best for you. And, and I know what's best for you. He's speaking the language of the common man to the common man. And it's this combination of um, really playing on um, anxiety and prejudice against others, others of other races, other religions, other, other people of other backgrounds who might be competing with these um, voters for, for jobs and for um, and moving into their neighborhoods and, again, bringing change that's anxiety-inducing they don't like. And, and also a anti-government message that is one that uh, has been the hallmark of conservative republicanism ever since, where you have this interesting combination of populist promises 
and a real desire to strip government down to its essence <laughs> and mm-hmm. do as little as possible, which is the fundamental contradiction that animates Trump's message during the campaign. And now, you know, I alone can help can do this. I alone can help you. But the way and the means by which the help is going to happen is by, you know, repealing Obamacare and and making the government as as small as possible and, and stripping down programs that actually do have an economic impact on mm. working and middle class people. So, uh, as you mentioned, and, and that, of course, also goes to the new and strange coalition that, that the Republican victory rested on, which was working class whites and the corporate elite uh, that both came together in this Republican victory. Um, and I want to use that coalition building as a question. Now, I know historians aren't supposed to look into the future. Uh, <laughs> and this election has taught even political scientists not to look into the future. Uh, but what role does the 2016 election have in, in history, the history books of tomorrow? Is this a paradigm shift? Is there a new coalition being built that will last or or? I mean, this is speculation, but but mm-hmm. how do you see this this election in the history books of tomorrow? Hmm. Um, yes. Well, we yes, historians don't like to don't like to be futurists in part because we you know we study history, you realize how wrong predictions often are. Yeah. But you know, like every election, this election, of course, it was surprising in many regards and and confounded the predictions of the experts. But in many other ways, not surprising at all, as as every election, no matter how pivotal, how disruptive, is the culmination of a half century of of change and and, you know, forces that are accumulating. Donald Trump did not come out of nowhere. He is a product of a half century long turn in the Republican Party towards this a Republican Party that already is this very um odd, uneasy, big tent, and has been particularly so since the rise of the Tea Party a decade ago, which is includes, you know, this economic populism, and this uh, free market commitment to, you know, free trade, low taxes, uh, corporate tax cuts, etc, etc. And, and those two things have, you know, been coexisting in the Republican Party for quite some time. He also was the product of a of a media environment, and I I define that very broadly, not just formal mainstream media, but also and social media, but also a kind of public zeitgeist, so to speak, that has um, been focused, you know, where the most prominent people in America are entertainers, not intellectuals, mm. uh, that has been increasingly skeptical of institutions and establishments of all kind. Uh, this is, you know, everything from universities to governments to political parties to Wall Street financiers to, you know, your your parents. <laughs> it's, it's this, and it's something that that both on the left and the right we see. You know, we had we had Trump's doppelganger and Bernie Sanders, um, mm-hmm. who was this, uh, you know, again speaking to uh, a, a disaffected, um, pop, progressive liberal wing of the Democratic Party. So these are things and we also, you know, this was this election and and Hillary Clinton, not only is she someone who's been a um, one of the most prominent people on the Democratic side for more than two decades, close on three decades, a very familiar face. But it it is, you know, with a great irony of of 
Hillary Clinton, the first woman nominee of a major party, becoming the ultimate establishment candidate, you know, that she was not the change candidate this year. And every year, you know, you look back through, I've been actually been, you know, doing a tally to confirm. I think the only, in my opinion, the only time you have a non-incumbent election and and this, and and actually some incumbent elections too, um, you, you could say nearly every election of the 20th century, with the exception of 1948, when Harry Truman, defies the, <laughs> the prognosticators and wins. You have the change candidate, the person who people believe is going to be more, you know, bring more change. That's the person who wins. And sometimes that's the incumbent. You know, Obama was the change candidate in 2012, even though he was the incumbent because yeah. in part because his opponent was Mitt Romney, who was a very much an establishment candidate. So so 2016 is is it, it is pivotal. It's disruptive. Certainly, yes, worth worth its own couple of chapters in <laughs> the next edition of my book, eventually. But it it is not that when you actually trace it back and look at these larger patterns, it isn't that surprising. So where does that? I mean, does that give us any clear path of where things will go? Not necessarily. There are a lot of other things that can come into play, particularly um, both you know domestic and foreign, who knows what, what will happen in the next four years or the next eight years. But we do see uh, in some ways, if we look at, if we think of these, this moment as part of, we see these patterns in the past, you can, it becomes more legible. You can say, well, we, this is not, you know, completely out of left field. Um, and institutions, this is how institutions have responded before. This is how individuals have responded before. Uh, that the United States has a, a grand tradition of, of uh, a lot of the, um, you know, all the, the, the hate and bigotry that, that Trump's run and win has, has fomented in the United States has a, is always been with us. Um, and we have a very long, ugly history in this country of, of that. We also have a very long history of grassroots protest and activism. And of, you know, hammering at the doors of institutions and eventually being let in and institutions changing very slowly, but they do change. And uh, progress is is gradual and uh, incremental. Uh, and it's, of course, there's a contested vision of, of uh, versions of you know, people have different ideas of what progress means. But there there are uh, the lively conversation will continue and contestation will continue. And this is part of the American experience and, and what we will see going forward. Well, I guess that more or less perfectly wraps up our conversation about about this his, elections as, as history. So I want to thank you for joining us on Campaign Context, Professor. It was my pleasure. Glad to be here. Uh, I also want to remind everybody to pick up a copy of Pivotal Tuesdays, for elections that shape the 20th century. Please visit the Campaign Context website at www.campaigncontext.wordpress.com for links to Professor O'Mara's books. You will also find previous episodes on subjects such as the history of conservative media, energy crisis, and the internal struggles of the modern Democratic Party. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can help us out by spreading the words to friends and colleagues. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. You'll find links for this and more on the homepage. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.